Welcome today to the Chris Meyer Podcast. Thank you for coming and joining us. We are here to discuss my life as a part-time writer and how that all came to be. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to people about writing. And, you know, you invariably talk to someone who says, yeah, you know, I have a book inside of me. And one of these days I'm going to get down and write it. Well, I said that too. And, and I actually did it. I took that first step. Wasn't easy. But um, after you get some thoughts down and then you start to organize them in a proper way, I really think that uh, most of us could do this. And we definitely have the time in our lives to do this. So I wanted to share my experiences with that with you all. And again, thanks for coming by today. So I was very lucky. I, I, I am not the tormented writer. I grew up in a a wonderful nuclear family in Westchester County, New York, in a town called, believe it or not, Pleasantville. That is not a movie. It is true life. As I said, I grew up um, with a great mom and dad who gave me everything I could ever want. And I had two older brothers who were great guys. And I had a once-in-a-lifetime relationship with my grandfather, who was named Upa, which is simply grandfather in German. And he and I were kind of connected at the hip. He was my biggest fan. He would come to all my games. And he was just a, a friend, a really good friend. And especially when my grandmother um, passed at a very early age, my grandfather would live another 30 years without her and never remarried because he said that she was the true love of his life. And he was a special man. He grew up um, in Germany and was um, bartered here by his father uh, in exchange for some money to keep the sawmill back in Germany running. And he came to work for my great uncle. And what my grandfather did was deliver milk, eggs, and cheese up and down the streets of New York City, Harlem, and the such uh, in an unair-conditioned truck for his entire life, six days a week, 12-hour days. So... I think it had taught me to uh, never complain in life, shut my mouth and, and grind. And I used him as inspiration, he and my father and my mother also. But a great, great uh, friend and obviously my grandfather, a uh, special man in my life. Another pivotal moment for me uh, growing up was uh, just about to go into my freshman year, my father decided to... Uh, go off and open his own business. He was a civil engineer consultant for the city of White Plains, then worked for a private company, worked very, very hard, loved what he did, but worked very long hours. And I think he hit a point, one point, and said to himself, you know, I'm working this hard. I would like to reap all of the profits, not um, someone else. So he had that confidence. And of course, when he told the family that, my mother obviously was always on board, but uh, I was scared. And he started it literally out of our house. We had a, a, a living room in the back of the kitchen and he would at night have people come over and they would moonlight. And he got a job or two from uh, a large movie company and... Um, he built a, a civil engineering business from right out of our home till 
you know, a 45, 50 person company that was a multi-million dollar company when he retired. So I think that uh, seeing that firsthand, my freshman through my senior year and watching him grow from out of our house to his first um, office and then eventually buying his own building, that was a very big inspiration and a very pivotal moment in my life to just watch my mom and dad um, start this business, have the courage and the tenacity to grow it and keep growing it. And it was very, very inspirational and very impactful in my life. I was very fortunate to go out to uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, to go to Purdue University when I uh, got into college. I was a little bit scared because I was a young uh, 18-year-old and uh, I had never been away from home besides camp and I hated camp. And so this was a, this was a long way from home for me out in Indiana and uh, fell in love with basketball and pick up basketball and they had uh, they had boys in Indiana that liked basketball just as much as I did and that was a a great friendship, uh, not with anyone in particular, but just being out where in, a, in an environment where people just loved basketball like I did. And, and you will see, as we discuss some of my books, that basketball becomes very much a theme in a lot of them and a central figure in a couple. After Purdue, I transferred in about a year and a half, two years in and went to Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, which was a great school and a great experience. I played JV basketball there, but really wasn't good enough to play varsity, um, which was a little bit of a, a downer. But um, the strange thing is, is that it did not deflate me in any way. I just, I, I kept playing basketball. I just loved basketball. From there, I, I went to uh, Vermont Law School and got a law degree and a master's degree by going straight through the summers. I had a master in environmental law, worked for the New York City Superfund branch in downtown Manhattan, and realized that um, the polluters were the higher payers. Uh, working for the government was not the high paying law jobs, but working for the various uh, Dow Chemical and uh, whoever was polluting or wanting to get out of the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act were the better payers. And that didn't sit so well with me. So um, when I was in law school, I got the opportunity. Uh, the LA race riots were happening and I, I did a crazy idea. I went to my writing professor and said, can I write a screenplay based on a race relations drama if I tie it into law school? And lo and behold, they came back and said yes. And I again, I still don't know how or why they did that, but they did. And I wrote a screenplay in law school as my advanced writing project. And once I took my bar in New York City, I decided that I would make a movie, a low-budget film, about $100,000 in and around um, Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. And I entered it into the independent feature film market, which was at the Angelica Theater in New York City. And when my uh, movie debuted, I was written up in Variety as the film to watch. Um, this kid was, you know, came out of nowhere and made this film called Black is White. And it was a race relations drama in which I flip-flopped the races. So my African-American or black actors played the white people and my white or Caucasian actors played the black people. And so it was received very well. Um, I thought I was a shoe in for Sundance. I got invited to a bunch of festivals around the country and actually into Rome, got flown to Rome for a film festival, which was awesome. I took my brother and we had a blast. And 
Then I did not get into Sundance. So that was a little bit of a downer. And I loaded up my car with my film. And I told my mom and dad, I'm going to move to LA. And obviously, uh, they looked at me like, you're an idiot. And how could you do this? We just paid for your law school and your master's degree. And I said, well, I just, I think this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. So again, not unlike many kids, I think whoever wants to become an actor or a writer or a director, I just literally loaded my car and left. And I drove to Los Angeles. Uh, I drove in a day and a half across the country, which was the stupidest thing someone could do. I urinated in Gatorade bottles because I didn't want to stop. Um, I just wanted to get there. And I will say that uh, Kansas is a very flat state. And it was a, it was quite an experience. But I, I eventually stopped somewhere outside of Boulder, I believe, and fell asleep for a few hours before I started it up again and drove to Los Angeles. And there, I had a friend uh, whose wife had seen my film and befriended him and he invited me to play basketball again out there and and said that he's running uh these commercials and would I like to work on them as a what they call a PA production assistant which is sort of the lowest level of the you're a grunt and I said of course you know they're paid pretty well and uh I could work on these commercials and pay some bills and lo and behold the the company he was working for is called Ritz Hayden and it was Herb Ritz uh, the foremost fashion photographer of the 80s and 90s did the Janet Jackson and Chris Isaac video and he was he was the it man of uh, photography in those times and so a lot of his shoots would have you know Paulina and Cindy Crawford and you know Helena Christensen I remember picking her up at the Chateau Marmont and um, it was pretty fabulous uh, on those shoots. I wasn't always like that on on shoots, but uh, those shoots were definitely you wanted to get on as a production assistant or something. And all all along, I kept writing. I mean, writing was a job for me. I did do it eight hours a day at, at a minimum, and I was vigilant. Um, I took classes at UCLA Extension, and uh, slowly got a manager. Then I got an agent. And uh, became what they call a spec writer. And a spec writer is basically an unpaid writer who has an idea and creates this script to be given to his agent or ma- and manager. And, you know, they go out, they find the 15 production companies or so or 20 that they feel would make this movie. And you literally know in 24 to 48 hours if your script sold. So I did that about three times and none of my scripts sold, but I was undeterred and I kept writing and it was, uh, it was quite a process. It was, uh, you know, one time I wrote a, a script about a frog and my agent said, your, your script was better than the script that they bought, but they bought a frog script about eight months ago and they paid a million dollars for it. So they're not going to buy another frog script. And I was like, great, thanks. You know? Would have been good to know before I started writing it, but that was the kind of rejection that that was, you know, always at the forefront in Los Angeles or Hollywood itself, and it did inspire me because it was um, it was the greatest learning lesson to get your head hit against a brick wall so many different times in so many different ways. I had production companies tell me to my face that I couldn't write. And, um, oh, what an awkward conversation one time where the two 
aspiring agents uh, called me on the phone and said, yeah, we don't think this is a profession for you. So you could imagine, A, why they would take the time to do that, and B, you know, what does someone have to do to come back from that to, to keep writing? And I think, you know, again, that goes back to the idea that I, I don't hear no very well. And I think that has helped me greatly in life. And if anyone's ever listening who has been up against uh, uncertain circumstances, I think it's really important to say uh, not hear no. And maybe think of it, it just simply means not at this time. And uh, it was hard. Um, it was a good growing up moment. But uh, out of my whole experience in Los Angeles, I met my wife. And it was on a blind date that I didn't feel like going on. We were double dating with a friend of mine. And he said, oh, just come along, man. There's two girls. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't do this on my own. And so I went with him. And you know, we spent every moment from that point on together. And she was... Uh, a great woman, or she still is. <laughs> She's my wife now. And uh, we had to end up having a baby in Los Angeles. And when she was pregnant, it was one thing. But when that baby came out, I will tell you at Cedar sinai um, that was a shocking moment for me. I was already an older man. I was about 37, I think. And that moment for me was the turning point because I looked at this little child and I said, I got to do something, man. I, I can't be, you know, an aspiring screenwriter the rest of my life. So we had a friend uh, who had always been a mortician. And he said, if you ever need something, the funeral business is a great, safe business. And lo and behold, my wife and I decided that that's something that we should pursue. And... <laughs> I did a little bit blindly and ended up looking up and around Northern California for about six to eight months, sleeping on his couch, sleeping on the floor, and then going home on weekends to my newborn and my wife. And we were lucky enough to find a funeral home that was in uh, bankruptcy or on the cusp of bankruptcy. And the only way they would respond would be to a cash offer. And so I went to my parents and they mortgaged their house. I don't know why to this very day. I talk about my son as the motivation, this, this newborn child, and I treated this opportunity like it was the only shot I had in the world. And so I do give myself a little bit of a pat on the back as well as our friend because the, the motivation I had for my son was really channeled into making this funeral home a, a success and I would do anything and everything I had to do to make uh, this venture succeed. So obviously I was called upon to go into the prep room, witnessing embalming, uh, go to the coroner's office, pick up bodies, go to people's homes and pick up their loved ones. And slowly over time, um, it became more and more comfortable. As you can imagine, the first few instances were shocking uh, of everything. You know, every first moment was shocking, whether it's meeting with a family, whether it was uh, picking up a dead body, whether it was, you know, whatever. Uh, they were all shocking. I knew I could do the the overhead, the the managing of the money. I knew confidently that I could handle that. Obviously, I had subsisted on very little in Los Angeles. So I took that <laughs> know-how and I brought it to the funeral home. And it was, uh, again, I say a life-changing experience, which over the course of the first five to 10 years, I would say 
started to uh, remind me of what is important in life. And so that's my just a, a just a real peripheral. Who is Chris Meyer? I gave you just a brief history. Thank you for the listening. And uh, I, I can't wait to tell you about my books. Thank you.